You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to ACCA uh, and to our conversation between Brent Harris and Justin Clemens. My name's Miriam Kelly. I'm a curator here at ACCA, and I worked closely with our artistic director, Max Delaney, uh, as the coordinating curator for this show on vulnerability and doubt. This show closes on Sunday next week, so thanks. I hope you all had a chance to see it. Otherwise, you've got one more week to go. Before we begin, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge the Boonwurrung people, who are the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land in which we meet today. I would also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and to expect, extend my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and to all First Nations people who may be in the audience today. This afternoon, we have the great pleasure of hearing from artist Brent Harris, whose works are represented in this exhibition, and from Justin Clemens, whose key essay is included in the accompanying catalogue. If you haven't already, uh, catalogues are available from the bar tonight and also online. Both our speakers today share an interest in and a rich knowledge of art history and philosophy. And I think we're in for a real treat today as they traverse topics from the psychology of touch and desire through to vulnerability and doubt. By way of very brief introduction, Brent Harris is a highly regarded Melbourne-based artist who works primarily in painting and increasingly also with the printmaking technique monotype. New Zealand-born Brent Harris studied in Melbourne uh, and was an early studio resident of Gertrude Contemporary in the late 1980s. Harris has exhibited widely since 1987 and with his selection uh, for inclusion in formative early exhibitions including Perspecta in 1989 and the Moet and Chandon Art Foundation touring exhibition in the same year, uh, his career was propelled into national spotlight. Harris has since exhibited widely nationally, including at the National Gallery of Victoria, Art Gallery of New South Wales, Art Gallery of Western Australia, and the Ian Potter Museum. Justin Clemens is a Melbourne-based writer and academic who gained his doctorate from the Melbourne, uh, University of Melbourne. Clemens has published extensively on contemporary Australian art and literature, and as well as psychoanalysis and contemporary European philosophy. His recent books include Psycho Psychoanalysis is an Anti-Philosophy, Minimal Domination, and Lacan, Deleuze, and Badiou uh, with A.J. Bartlett and John Rofe. Clemens was a founding secretary of the Lacan Circle of Melbourne over 2004-2009, and also art critic for the monthly over the same period. Is that correct? Well, excellent. Would you please give me, uh, join me in giving a warm welcome to our speakers tonight? Well, hi. Thank you. Thank you for that, Miriam, and thank you, thank you all for coming this evening. Um, uh, I'm actually very excited to, uh, 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 and pleased to be here uh, to speak to Brent about, about some of his work. You've uh, hopefully seen the, seen the show, but uh, Brent and I have uh, had this really absolutely fantastic conversation yesterday, and um, hopefully even a, a modicum of it can be reproduced tonight, because it was amazing, I have to tell you, talking to Brent. So uh, I hope that's not too much pressure, but can you... Uh, uh, Brent is, is going to show us some, some work, and we're, we're just going to, we're just going to uh, talk through some of the, some of the issues that, yes. that, that okay. arise. So we start with what's in the exhibition. Um, so we start with these, these Nolimitantari paintings, the two on the, um, the two paint, large paintings on the left here, um, relate, well, they're my versions of Titian's Nolimitantari painting. And the story is, Christ is saying, um, don't touch me to, um, to Mary Magdalene. Um, I've always liked the idea, she's moving into the past here, she's gesturing to the past. I much prefer her gesturing into the future, so I flip the image of my works, um, as you'll see there. Um, my engagement with this subject is not um, religious as such, but I'll, and I'll probably be repeating that tonight. Um, and it's more of, it's a... It's a so much denial. <laughs> um, it's basically, a, well, Friends who die, people who die close to you, people you've loved and loved you die. You are no longer able to touch them in the flesh. You can then only touch them in the spirit. And that's basically what Jesus is saying to Mary. So rather, it, it's not, for me, it's not just a religious story. It's real in my life where people who have died and I can no longer touch them in the flesh and I can only touch them in spirit. And it's, I'm, everybody's got that, has that experience. This is what that religious story says to me, so I bring it to myself. 
Yeah, and, and, and the, 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 the setting in the garden is the risen Christ. Mary Magdalene wants to, wants to touch him, and he yes. says, don't, don't, don't touch. But one of the ways in which you're understanding it is that, or it seems to me, is that um, it's, not, it's not a prohibition. It's that you, ca you actually can't touch. Don't, yeah. I see it more as like, you can't touch rather than don't touch. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, the other paintings in the show are these my versions of the Doubting Thomas paintings. Um, here's quite a good one, quite an erotic image. I've been quite drawn to the eroticism of this subject matter as well, um, to the touch. Um, and so, you know, uh, I guess, sorry to, to interrupt, Brent, but, but just in the, in the New Testament, these two stories about touching, which are kind of inverse each other, right? The, uh, Mary is told by, 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 by Christ, Nolimitangere, don't don't touch, and then doubting Thomas, who sees who sees Christ and does not believe in, in that, that it's the risen Christ. Christ says, "Actually, touch, touch me." Yes, he's being invited to finger. Yeah, in, uh, finger finger Christ's wound. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is one of my favourite. I think you'd have to put it into the Nolim, um, into the doubting Thomas images. The, but it's so eroticised. This yeah. a, a swooning Christ. Um, the eroticism in this, it's um, by Rosso Fiorentini, and this wouldn't be such an erotic painting if it wasn't Christ um, being imaged, I believe. Mm. Um, yeah. Yep, the, 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 the sex of Jesus or something, or the, the phallus that is Jesus, or, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think that will do on those. We're going to go, sorry, we're, I'm going to dig into a bit of religion with these. I'm not, I keep saying I'm not religious, I'm not religious, but we'll get yeah. to that. He isn't, he really isn't religious, <laughs> the, the, even though he says he isn't. Um, this, is a, this is a series, um, The Stations of the Cross, which I made in um, 1989. Mm. And at the time, my engagement with the subject was not religious, again, it was a narrative of, for me, that sat very closely to the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Friends of mine were dying of AIDS. The story here is of a young man, Christ 33, um, judged today, dead today, you know. So, um, so my engagement with the subject was far more psychological than religious. Um, I might move to the next image, this here. So in the first, I'll do this often. So he, Christ here, this is the first station he's judged. This is, I guess, the diagnosis. He takes the cross, the burden of, um, of his health. So in this story, this is a young man, and he's, he's dying. He's about to die over here. But he falls three times in his journey. Um, in his journey, and for me, this was this was the reduction of his ego. A young man, a young person going to their death, goes to their death a lot differently to an old person. An older person, where your body is kind of tired, you've had enough for all sorts of reasons. But for a young man, and some of my friends did not want to, like no one young wants to die. Um, but so Jesus falls three times, and each time. He falls in this story. His ego is reduced just a little bit more, you know. So by the time he gets nailed up, you know, he's kind of getting a bit sick of it. Um, so this number five, Simon helps carry the cross. You know, we all carry the burden of each other's death as well. Um, so, you know, my, this is my engagement with this subject matter. Again, this sort of religious subject matter. I, mean, I guess one of the things that... Uh, um, maybe this is a bit unfair, but uh, the, the biblical scholar Guy Struzma says uh, Christianity is basically a, it's a tradies religion, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a carpenter, he's an ordinary bloke, he likes a VB and, you know, like, you know, a, a, a barbecue with his mates. But as a result, Christ, uh, or the, the Christian religion as such, has a... Uh, carries an injunction with it, which is the Son of God is actually very, very dem demotic, very, very close to you and me. And so that psychological uh, identification is very, very present from the, from the beginning in, in, in Christianity. And the other point that, that, that Struzma makes in that is that one of the things about Christianity, 
I'm not sure why we're even talking about this, but uh, is that uh, uh, Christianity offers an injunction that you have to imitate Christ. That's part of being a Christian. You can't do exactly the same as Christ did because then you would have misunderstood what imitation of, of, of Christ is. But what in your life, what will happen are very, very should be very, very similar things to, 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 to Christ. And so the, I guess, judgment, the suffering, the falling, the help from friends and, yes. and so forth, that has to be very, very present in, a, in, in, in Christianity in a way that's not necessarily the case in, 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 in other religious phenomena. Hmm. I don't know about other religions particularly. No, but, but, but in this, in yes. this And this, sense. it really connects with me. And this narrative really connected with me at the time. So, can you, can um, you, sorry to, uh, also can you say something about your minimalism and the, and your, yeah. Coming to this, I've just come out of, I've uh, studied at VCA, um, 82, 83, 84, and um, I was making quite messy paintings at the time and I felt quite weak by them not being tough enough, so I thought I had to toughen up. I dropped out colour, I went to this hard edge, no gesture on the surface, and then this subject matter um, even reinforced my sort of, you know, um, commitment to, to moving away from a more expressive And, sort and of it's thing. really non-figurative in this sense. It is non-figurative, but I connect it all with the narrative. Each, each image connects to the narrative. Um, so that's 89. And then this, the next series here on the right was a series called um, Just a Feeling. And so through these painting these very flat surfaces, trying to express myself in them, trying to get um, expression into a flat, linear sort of painting, um, was very much in my mind. And then this series um, developed, how am I going to express this kind of sexuality? This, uh, you'd have to say these are quite libidinally driven. Um, so how to get that kind of expression over in a flat surface? Yeah. You know? I mean, if you could just flip back to that, that, that the previous slide, though, I just one of the things I was so struck when you first showed me this this transition was, on the one hand, exactly as you, you said about the minimalist uh, Stations of the Cross series, you, you strip out colour, you strip out figuration, you have a, a very uh, you know hard hard reduct, reductive surface, and then all of a sudden the very next thing you couldn't have got to the to the second series except through the first series, but no one who saw that series would be able to predict that second series. Right. I, I mean, I, I find that Probably like not. amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I find that part of the part of the art the art of it. The figuration returns, color returns, yes. and a libidinal uh, investment returns absolutely. But yes. having learned from, I, I presume, the Stations of the Cross, the yes, yes, yeah. kind of really connects. Um, Monash University now own four of these. Um, what Zara's, happened to the other two? No, Zara's, three of them sold to private collectors and Zara mm. Stanhope bought three of them for Monash collection yeah. and I've since spoken to all three collectors and one has since gifted one of them to Monash and the other two collectors are going to gift them so they'll stay as a group of six. So, so why six? Can I, can no, I ask us? I, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think I ran out of ideas after that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Um, so this is a very recent painting, um, and again it has this strange kind of religious um, reading to it as well. Um, these two figures, for me, appear as witnesses. They've appeared in several other paintings at the bottom, and in this landscape. This is called The Other Side, Peaks The Other Side. Um, they are looking up into the sky. This painting comes from, um, started as this print, where these two creatures are these, I think they're a stand-in for the artist, actually. They're wanting a revelation. They are wanting to something to be revealed to them um, high above. Um, the other, the other um, work over here is a small board. Um, and again, I was trying to facialise the canvas. Um, again, trying to find some imagery beyond myself, beyond the visual, I suppose, so facialising what might be in the sky. So I mashed these two, two works together to... Um, to form the painting. Um, and at the time I was reading this Heaven on Earth, T.J. Clarke, and this work from the um, Padua um, Chapel. 
And I love the idea of the blue just being heaven and the earth in the greys, which um, is very much the palette that I stole for this work. So one of these figures can only see the eye and the other figure can only see the ear. This could be the face of God in the sky, if you like, but they're still not able to put it together to form one meaning. And it's like life, you know, we, what is going on? You know? So you can't form, a, there's no fixed meaning to be made um, from from their desire for some revelation, and in fact, what might result. Um, and yet the figures at the same time, they are startled and struck by what they see. There is, there is some uh, effective revelation, even if it's not the, the even if they can't- They're not getting the whole picture. They're not getting the whole picture. Mm. Well, I guess there is no whole picture, literally. Like, well, yes, uh, that's my point, yeah. in, my, you know, in the way that I read the work as well. Yeah. Um, so, this is going to dig into a, um, a more personal um, subject matter. This is a painting by Colin McCann in New Zealand called The Family. And I was just saying to Justin, it doesn't look like a very happy family to me. There's not a lot of joy here. Um, but this, I first saw this painting when I was 19 and had a fairly tortured um, childhood, mainly due to my father. Um, so this is stuck in my mind, and then I started this series called Grotesquerie, and this is my aversion, if you can see. The father is, um, appears under this mask. The mother always appears as this blonde um, creature. The father is in this form that's coming out of his mouth. He's breathing his sexual desire, if you like. It's, um, it's both female and male, testicle and breast. The mother is suckling a child, very similar to the, the um, proportions of the... Um, the Macan. The, I worked through um, this series. This, they're quite large paintings. Um, in the painting on the left here, I've stuck a. He's quite an, um, an unpleasant father. Um, I've dummied his mouth, um, silenced him in this version. There are 26 paintings in this series. Um, the middle painting, I've cut his throat here, and he's bleeding the family, if you like. So. If you see the positive and negative, there are two children either side, and his mother is reaching up through the centre. Um, and again, on the right, that's him expressing his sexual desire. Thank you. Sorry, uh, Brent, again to interrupt, but uh, just say something perhaps about this, the details in the mother, the chain, the, the, the little details that change, say in the mother's hair, for an instance. Right. It, yeah. um, that moves around. It's just, it's sort of starting to form a face in this work. Yeah. Um, it comes more here in this work. Um, I think this is number 11. The father isn't present in this work, but he's present in her head. He is, she cannot get rid of him. This is me seeing that he is not present, but he's still present in my mother's head. She couldn't shake him off. Um, so Literally, her hair becomes a mask of his hair. Yes, of him. He's still pre he's present. And I'll come back to that in the recent painting that's here. So this is the last painting in this series. So this is him. I've found another image for him. And he's staring. The last painting, number 26, he's staring into this empty mirror. So there's no reflection for him. This is almost his death. He died two years ago. Um, and again, over here, this is him, the family below him, almost dribbling the family, if you like. And then again, he's looking at his sexual desire, which is both um, phallic and female at the same time. Um, so out of a fairly traumatic um, childhood experience with this man, I've been able to, you know, this, I guess it's kind of romantic, I don't know, but I've brought this forward as a generator um, in my work. So here's the mother. Um, father in the Mask. It brings me to the painting that's out the back here, which started as just this little thumbnail drawing that I made in New York in 2017, sitting in a room of Guston paintings, actually, and then developing, developing it into this painting. And at one point, I saw the mother, the mother re-entered, and then I started to see the father's mask up in my head. If that is myself moving off the canvas, um, I started then to see he's, he's no longer in her hair, he is now in my head. This is after my father died two years ago. Um, I hadn't spoken to him for 25 years and I was waiting, waiting for something, waiting to hear from him. An apology, something that never came. So the ears are about waiting to hear. The mother is, remains mute as well. So I think this is me heading off to New Zealand. This painting was exhibited at the Auckland Art Fair last year.
And I think that's me heading back to New Zealand where I was born with the stretcher over my mm -hmm. um, shoulder. Father now in my hair as he is dead and the mother still kind of mute and I'm all ears. So like when I make this painting, I'm not thinking this is the narrative that I'm now going to illustrate. The narrative kind of builds from this little drawing and then I start to see the narrative building in the image. Yeah. So, yeah, there it is there. Um, so that's 2018, this painting. So the subject's still alive. Um, this is another painting from 2017 that was shown at Tolano. And it's called The Studio, the painting on the right. The painting on the left is a Philip Guston painting called The Studio. And this is my homage to him, if you like. Um, and we were talking, and I was saying probably Guston is probably a good father figure to me rather than the bad father figure. Although he was terrible to his own daughter, I think. Oh. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. yeah, no, but you can have I a I don't think he wanted the child, did he? No, but... No, it seems quite... But he's a good art father rather than, yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, so, now this imagery in the one on the right, apart from coming from Gustin, comes from this early drawing of mine in the series of the grotesquerie. And I haven't shown this drawing before. It stayed um, concealed in my studio. But when my father died um, two years ago, I dragged it out because it's a portrait of him. Um, and as it was in my studio over time, I started to see it perhaps as a portrait of myself. So I made the work on the right-hand side and now see that so the father becomes the self, not that I'm at all like my father, but the father becoming the self and then I've used this portrait in this studio painting. So I guess I'm just trying to show how the subject matter comes to the paintings and how you know I form the imagery and... Um, you know, it comes from quite a few different places. Quite personal. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, can you can you say something too about the talons of the of the? Oh, it's just know. scratching away. You know, like the the hell of being an artist. You know, trying to find this. Yeah, from trying the chaos to find of colours. Like, yeah, uh, well, the mess there. He's trying to find some order in that. You know. Who's the, who, do you have a do you have a, a correlate for the for the witness figure down on the at the bottom no. left? No, I don't. Just had to, again, it is a witness to the, to the scene. Mm. Um, um, this is a series that, of, these are all images of small boards that I made. I made about 100 of these small boards. And I'd seen a psychiatrist for quite a while. Um, he was the best psychiatrist, I think. He retired five years ago, which was unfortunate. Anyway, he put me on to these two um, psychiatrists, Kurt Wolf, whose idea of surrender and catch is <clears throat> in order, and he just, he brought this to me and saying, look, this relates to your work. You, the, your, I start these images just by putting down color and then slowly an image will come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the way that I make monotypes. Um, and he said, well, you know, he introduced me to Kurt Wolf and this idea of surrender. You have to surrender yourself to the possible, to the unknown, if you like, and you just have to wait and move and, you know, push. And when, when something presents itself, you have to be prepared to catch it. So I find yeah. that, found that. Yeah, and so you do this again and again, in this case with colour, yes. right, and out of this, this the, the, the chaos of colour, some, suddenly something will resolve itself as a figure or an organ or a, or a, or a landscape. Is it, is it mainly figures that, that strike you first or not necessarily? No, I think it is the figuration that comes first. And then a narrative starts to form and once I sort of start to get an idea, yeah. I'll follow it. Yeah. They're not the best examples to, um, to show. Um, these are some monotypes that I'd made, um, and I'll show you more recent ones. Um, so the, the, the one on the right-hand side, this old man, if it looks like. So this, these monotypes are started just with a black, um, a black sheet of perspex, completely rolled up black, and I just start smudging away at them, and then the imagery starts to come to the surface. Um, so when I'm making, the, say, the one on the right, I'm not thinking, now I'm going to make this old guy sitting on a bench about to drop into oblivion, and these creatures at the back are his, the figures in his mind, but the imagery comes to the surface in this weird way. You know, like it's almost accessing um, some inner, the inner monster, if you like, or something, you know, like making... Absolutely. Just remaining open to seeing what comes to the surface. So, and then the narrative arrives after that. So now I see this old guy sliding off this bench into oblivion, 
and these creatures behind him are his past. Um, and I mentioned to um, the person that owns one of the paintings in here, um, I was saying this figure looks quite feminine, it's feminising, and he said the male figure does feminise as it gets older and the female body does masculinise. So it sort of all starts to make sense. The one on the image on the left here, I have no idea, you know, it's quite monstrous, but it's sort of surfaced and... Um... I mean, I guess there's, in, in terms of just a, a kind of free association, I, for, for me, I, I, like there's Rembrandt and, the, and, and Susanna and the Elders for some reason, but perhaps that's just a pure, pure projection. Well, that's, I have to project into them as well, and a yeah. lot of that projection comes from all the images that are stuffed inside my historical imagery. You know, and that's how a lot of the religious imagery comes to the work And, well. and so, you, you know, as we were, we were talking about, one of the things that, say, Freud did with psychoanalysis was introduce free association, where you may have the, the patients meant to just lie there and say anything whatsoever that comes into their head, whether it's gibberish, chaos, nothingness, boring, whatever. But after, after a long time, something emerges, patterns that were unforeseen and unforese priorly unforeseeable, will emerge from that, from, from those presentations. And it was one of the things, as, we're, uh, as you know, that the, the surrealists took up very, very early in the world, uh, in the realm, not just of writing, but also of images too. And I, I presume something of this, rather than of words, but in the images that you're making, something of your, you know, the re revel revelation of the unconscious or something uh, is, is, or even is at stake. Yeah, the, absolutely. And I think the, sh the, sh the shrink, I took this, this is a monotype up here at the left, I took this in to show the shrink, and I said, I think it's this failing prophet. <laughs> and he said, you don't need to use the word failed. He said, all, prophets, all yeah. prophets fail. So I dropped the failure. Um, I mashed these two monotypes together to form the painting on the right here. So even in the monotype, his hands are becoming feet. He'll end up putting his um, foot in his mouth. Um, so this again is just showing the way imagery sort of forms from free association, from, you know, it, was, it is a bit close to the talking cure, I suppose, you know, just let it out and, to, and then you, you know, then and I feel that it, that it resolves or you surrender to it and then you catch it as, as it emerges. And I hope it continues to um, come to the surface. I made a hundred of these in the year that I made these um, monotypes and they've been feeding into work quite regularly. This is the most recent painting that I've made, the one on the right, it's not that big. And that comes from this monotype here. And there's a skeleton at the bottom of this figure. So, like, again, when this imagery comes to the surface of the board, and a lot of imagery does come to the surface that you wipe out, it's just too stupid, uh, you know, not enough. So you just roll it out in black ink and start again. Um, so a lot of... Just quite, repetition of rolling, yes. the, rolling the ink, rolling yeah. the ink, yeah. Um, so this has come back to life. This is just an image that has been in the bank of these monotype images of mine, and it's again come forward. Um, this is in the studio, just finished. Um, and I am identifying, it's almost again the father, the mother, and here is death. He's now been, you know, introduced to death. Um, mm. So just, it's almost know, an update of the grotesque repaintings. Yeah, but with the blondness of the, of the mother's hair as well. Really. Well, that's always the yeah. mother when the blonde appears. Yeah. Um, and she's always kind of mute. Um, this is another, this is a, these are two paintings that were in a recent show I had in New Zealand. Um, this is called Incident Over Taranaki, the mountain in um, New Zealand. So, um, should we carry on with this? Yeah. Um, this little painting, it's a small painting, it's only about this big, it was painted in 92. And um, it's called Apron of Abuse. You can't see it spelt down there. So it has these pansies across the bottom and it's forming this apron idea. And this was made in 1992, never exhibited. And my dealer in Wellington wanted it, so um, I sent it over to him last year. And I've now started to make a larger version of it. But the story behind this was walking down um, Brunswick Street in 92. I must have been like 30-something. And... Um, this guy was walking this other way, and just out the corner of his mouth, he called me a pansy. Um, nowadays, it would be faggot, but in those days, it was pansy. And it's completely redundant, I think, that word now. It's a term for homosexual. Um, anyway, but I didn't take it as a massive insult, um, because I'd been 
focused on Robert Gover's work here and his beautiful pansy up here, painted in watercolour on this. So I was very aware of this work of his um, and had been for quite a while. So when this guy called me a pansy, I thought, oh, Robert Gover. Yeah. And, and then, so that stuck in the mind. And then I was also conscious of this Sigmar Polk painting. This is called The Large Cloth of Abuse. You can read some German, the can't you? Yeah. What is it? Oh, it's just child killer and so forth. Yeah, shit fucker. I don't know. Yeah. So, and there's Sigmar Polk wearing his apron of his cloth of abuse there. So he's now impervious to any further abuse. Um, and I kind of like that idea. So I decided to domesticate this. I put the pansy ring at the bottom of my apron. So I domesticated it into an apron, and wrote down this side of it, which is a small homage to Colin McCann, the open. This is the large painting that's in the studio at the moment, forming. Um, it's eight foot tall. And I had to make these two other studies for it because the larger painting is smaller, skinnier than the, big, the small painting. Can you, can you say something about your scale? Because you do work between like, like quite different scales and these very beautiful, tiny little, little pieces. And then as you say, like, uh, this work, which is a, of a, a, a slightly larger, or even the works that are in uh, some of the works that are in the show here. Mm. I think it, matter, it makes a difference between whether it's in my head or whether I'm standing in front of it. And often in the studio, if it's more in my head, it'll be a smaller image, and if it's something that I relate to on a bodily level, yeah. it becomes larger. Well, well this, this is a larger-than-life apron. Yes. It's, a it's, a, it's a very big apron. It's a very big apron. Yes. But like the, I guess the polka work, which is much bigger than than, than the yes. body itself. That yes. So it's my large apron of abuse. Your you large think. apron, yeah, the, like yes. the large glass of Duchamp's or something. Yeah. Yeah. Did uh, <laughs> can you also say something about your because you've you've alluded to it several times the the the, the I guess the. Rep the repetition in your work, but over in over kind of dis disjunct time sequences, something will emerge. Yes, you'll catch it. You'll you'll show it, or you won't show it. But then sometimes years later, in, a, in an unexpected way, for instance, as you just said with the pansy work, all of a sudden it'll be the yes. time to, to for it to come back. Do you do you have a sense of how that happens? Or, or I have a sense of aging. Uh, yes, you know, like as you, as I grow older, <laughs> oh I am able. To, I'm seeing that I'm able to mine anything that. I've made in the past is my own subject matter, and sometimes it resonates quite clearly. Yeah, and so do you feel you're becoming now. more in command of that? Oh um, yes, as you age, yeah. At, to some extent, but I'm, I'm more interested in what I, I'm, I'm interested in those figures that look. They're waiting for something. They're waiting for a revelation. I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm always yeah. wanting another image to come to me. Yeah. Not, you know, yeah. and I don't know what the image is, and sometimes it's emotionally driven, or you know. Psychologically driven, I suppose. So I think I'd have to describe myself as being the work as being psychologically driven, and I think Louise Bourgeois is probably one of the people that have really um, helped on, on that course. Uh, at the same time, in, in both your case and, and Louise Bourgeois, I would never look at your work and say, "Ah, Louise Bourgeois is there." But but I can see that maybe even though in her case, it's, they're, 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 there's no question about the psychology. Is there, Maman? For, for instance, yeah. it's called Mother. It's a giant spider, like. Uh, but in some of your works, there's a much more uh, a, a formal or or, un, or unclarified relationship between the psychology and the and the and the presentation. Is that is that right or not? Not for you. I've sometimes wondered whether the flatness of my things is sometimes how somehow protection. Yes. In a way. Yeah. So you just flatten everything out. Yeah. Do, do Do you work in, in Do you work in sculpture? No. Moving image. No. Just it's just painting. Yeah. Or, or print making. Print. Painting. Yeah. yeah. So generally flat. And do you uh, uh, shift between printmaking? Eternally flat. Like so, another <laughs> soft target. Eternally flat. Yeah. Yeah. But there's becoming but, more texture in the paintings. Yeah. I remember years ago, another artist complained at me and he said, oh, you'll find your work's just too flat, you know. Why don't you get some? Mm. And I said, look, if you want more Scumbling. gesture and painting, yeah. look over there, you yeah. know. Don't have to look at my work. But now a whole series of, yeah, <laughs> look at someone else. Yeah, yeah. look at someone yeah. else. You can yeah. find plenty of paint over there, you know. So, yeah. so what, what do you feel? Uh, what, what are, so what are you working on now? Are you working on more like this, more of the, uh, uh, alongside the apron? Or? Um, I'm working, I'm working on um, the most recent work is going to be going into an exhibition called Monster Theatres um, coming up in an institution. And so this guy's obviously come back to mind 
as the monster, and it's the monstrous father for me. Yeah. Um, but it might not stay with the father. But it, I'm, I'm in the process of developing some new monotypes, which will also pull forward new monsters, if yeah. you like. So monster from monsters. within. Yeah, 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 yeah whatever's yeah. making those images appear to me, um, yeah. I'll, I hope to re-engage with what I'm engaging with. Yeah, I, I, I once again, I sort of apologise for getting all theological, but the, uh, you know, the English theologian John Milbank has an image of uh, 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 what's Christ? Christ is a monster. He's the, he's the most extreme of all monsters, and that's also part of the identification that... Uh, uh, the, the successive identifications with Jesus are the fact that he is, he is, in fact, so monstrous. He's not a nice, domestic, like, abusive father in that way. I'm not sure. I don't think religion's getting a good... Um, a good hammering? Or, no, no, it's getting no, a no. bloody good hammering at the moment, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So, and, you know, I'm, I'm not in defence of... No, no. In defence of it. But, but, in, but in defence of the, of the powers of the imagery to make other things possible. Yeah, but I don't think Christ as a, yeah. as a monstrous um, story or a monstrous idea. Yeah. I quite like the idea. And the stories yeah. that surround um, him I also find quite valuable in bringing meaning to my own life. You know, we're talking about that and, yeah. you, you know, you've, you've written about my work in the past and we've spoken about meaning and you introduced that, um, that quote of Paul Valerie. you know, um, what is it? A bad poem is one that will vanish into meaning, you yeah. know. Well, I think my main problem is I want, my, I want meaning, I want meaning to come to my work. Well, when we were talking about this before, I then thought that uh, Brent's problem is he's not bad enough to achieve the meaning that he wants. And, and so the paradox of Brent is he wants the meaning that would make his work bad, but he's too good for, to let that happen. So as he continues to not get what he wants, he continues to produce better and better uh, uh, images. Uh. I've been focusing recently on Walter Swennon's work. Mm. And, the, and the rhetoric and the writing and his words around it are pretty much... When I get close to a meaning, I'll scrub it out. You know, he doesn't want meaning, which yeah. I, I just find that really ridiculous. You know, and I don't yeah. even—I don't think it's true yeah. for his work. Even. You know, and he makes different statements about how I don't repeat myself. That none of the work is preconceived, yeah. and I've just recently um, bought a drawing of Swenon's called the Two um, Egyptians. And this drawing was made in 2012, and then in 2015, there's a projected image of it on a yeah. beautiful yellow surface. Yeah. And he's saying the images only ever come to the surface. You know, like there are lots of different ways of imagery forming. Yeah, but you and can't. I, I think you can't trust his declarations, right? They're <laughs> Maybe too, you they're can't too trust dogmatic. any artist. Oh, you can never trust. Well, yeah, let's hope not. Let's yeah. not trust those artists. The, yeah. uh, is it, are there any other artists you're looking at at the moment? Who um, I always look at Monk. Edvard Munch, but again for the psychological yeah. depth in his work um, and the figuration. But he's obviously looking more out, outwardly to, the, to his world and in projecting his psychology onto the world that he's looking at, whereas yeah. I think my imagery comes more from the inside. Yeah, it's very interior, it's psychological. Yeah. And it's finding it's trying to find its way out. Yeah, yeah. And, it and that's how I relate to bourgeois more. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to fit Gustin in amongst that. You know? I don't know. I just I like his paintings. They're, they're, they're great paintings. They're great paintings. The, would you like if, if people are uh, up for it? We've got some time for, for questions. So uh, there's a, a roving microphone apparently. So if you if you'd like to ask a, a Brent a question, please please just uh, put up your hand. Um, so Justin, you talked about the importance of uh, automatic writing for the surrealists. Um, I, I've been thinking about how uh, for Breton in the first Surrealist Manifesto he talks about how the subject for Surrealism is the subject of the unconscious and in the second Manifesto he talks about how the real subject for Surrealism should be the um, material unconscious of collective historical praxis and Brent, so you've talked a lot about how, um, how your personal psychic unconscious has been uh, very important um, inspiration for your work. Uh, do, uh, do you think, well, or, well, artist or critic, um, there is an internal um, historical, materialist historical movement in the work as well that somehow responds to our late capitalist moment? Um, maybe from what I can see, a commentary on our contemporary schemas of seeing in the flatness, perhaps. I think things are moving more to a subjective level, aren't they, generally, artwork? 
in the art? Well, this show is definitely uh, vulnerability and doubt yeah. in, the, in that sense. But, mm. but there is, there's definitely, even though, even though your references, and as, as you've talked about, are so, are so intensely personal, uh, uh, private, and, and the problem of privacy with them and the, the, the expression of that is, is definitely part of it. But to come back to the Guston then, and uh, along the, the, the lines of the, the question is, there are references, there are references to the materiality. What's Guston? It's the KKK, chain smoking, the, you know, these kind of disgusting, you know, extreme aspects of the, of the, of the political presence. So they're not, they're not foreign to your work either, are they, in, in, in that way? I think Guston's probably dealing with shame, his own shame. Oh, he's definitely dealing with his own shame. There's, There's a, a lot, lot of shame in Guston. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I used to feel a lot of shame until I started seeing shrinks. And they said, just spit it out. It's not your shame that you're feeling. But, yeah, you know, I think we all carry shame. I mean, yeah. when does a child start to carry shame? It's when? A, yeah. I was thinking about that in the shower this, this morning and I thought, maybe it's when they start to manage their own shit. I don't well, know. That's that, always that, does that sound yeah. ridiculous? Like, when does a child start to feel yeah. Yeah. shame or, you know, because everybody's, we've all, we've all got these bloody burdens going off in our heads yeah. one way or another. Yeah. I, when does it happen to it? When does well, a child lose its innocence? You know, I, there's certain things that have happened to me that I could pinpoint, but there is a moment, and I wonder whether yeah. it is. And somehow. that's a, well, I guess that's a, the social moment, but it can be, it, it definitely playing with shit and, and being told by your parents, don't do it there, put it there, don't put it there, why can't I play with it? Yeah. It's apparently the first rule in art therapy is never never give children clay to play with, as right. the, which I found out the other day I was I was struck by. But, uh, but And I guess shame is very, very attached to the products of the body. Yeah. But also, I, I guess just when you recognise, when children, uh, uh, the child... A child recognises that it is just for others an object in the world and not, you know, not, yeah, not the world itself or mm. not. That, that, that sort of separation is part of shame and the apparition yeah. before others as, a, as an object for their, yeah, for their view and not, 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 a, not, a, not itself. I don't, mm. yeah. yeah. Hi. How did you get that effect in that monotype? Is that just... Paint or no? It's just you roll it. You roll a plate up with black ink, and then you just start sponging away on it. And I use a paper towel. They're only about this big. They're not so large. And I drag the, I drag the paper down across it, and um, it's. I know it looks ridiculous. I'll have to copy it. <laughs> Going back to those other ones, we are the, the, these ones here. That made the same, totally the same way. And do you do you dab and yeah, I push, I like, push it back in when it's yeah. when I've stripped out too much, and if the imagery goes looks just sometimes it looks quite ridiculous. I could have put up a lot more monotypes. That year I made a hundred, and they just were sort of coming to the surface, and some are a bit more terrifying than others. Um, but, are there any, you know, are there well, any happy ones, Brent? Sorry to interject, no, but they're all they're, yeah. yeah. No, it's hard to make a large. Monotype, particularly in the, this is the dark field. And previous to making these, I'd just seen a, a Dagar exhibition in Boston, mm. 2011, yeah. and then I came back and I was really impressed. But only da Dagars only get to be this big as well. It's but they're very big. intense. Yeah. In the, yeah it's in much the easier to make a large monotype using the light field technique, where you're actually painting onto it, and then you print from the painted. But this is actually finding the imagery in the dark, mm. and uh, it's what interests me a lot. It's it's amazing that they hold their they hold that power as they're blown up bigger and bigger too because yeah when when, when you some, some when, of them yeah. do. I'm making an eight foot version of that um, the last painting that the monstrous father is becoming a um, that one. There's an eight-foot painting version of this with a pink, hot pink skeleton <laughs> across the bottom of the canvas, which is present in the monotype here, but I've pulled it up in this big painting, yeah. um, which should be finished by the end of the yeah. year. How big is the painting? Eight foot tall, yep. so 244. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's one of my little problems to get back to in the studio. <laughs> oh, hi. Uh, yeah, I love these paintings. They're very interesting. Uh, I... I'm kind of a bit confused, though. Uh, you know, you mentioned scratching away in order to bring bring order to the amorphous mass, and then you also mentioned um, imperv impervious to further abuse. 
flatness for protection, and to me those, you know, impervious to further abuse, flatness to protection and, and the scratching away to, are two different, uh, really referring to two different things, like there's the public and there's the private. Mm. Like the private, you know, self-education is the sort of scratching away, so it's that, like the Freudian archetypes maybe you mentioned, but even though, uh, yeah, Freudian. Uh, and then there's this public world that you're referring to as well, the, the, the impervious to further abuse. Uh, it just seems as this clash here. Um, that's referencing that Sigma Polk large cloth of abuse where he's wearing the abuse. So he's impervious to any further abuse himself. He's taken it on board. And mm. I think, I mean, even being called a faggot these days doesn't seem to have the same effect upon me. I'm, I, you know, my gay friends, we call each other faggots. You know, it's not a... You sort of, yeah. you take the sting out of the word by using it. But that's the public world. That's not the private oh, world. Oh, no, it's the private world as well. Right. It's in my private... It's in my house. Yeah. You know, I live with a homosexual. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, yeah, I was just interested. Yeah, no, but I think there's uh, plenty of room for contradiction and everything, you know, like... And often I find the imagery in... Um, comes forward in the contradictions, you know, me fighting what's coming to the surface and thinking that's just too ridiculous to let that surface and mm. sometimes having to let it come to, you know, and there's, there's a, you've got to, yeah, you've somehow got to make peace with contradiction as well. And I guess any, that's maybe the main problem with the word is contradiction, you know, like, you can't use words without contradiction, No, that's right. No. No. But, but, but here it's, it is also true. Just I, I find actually the, 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 you know, that the, there's always that disjunction between the monstrosity of the subject and the beauty of the, 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 beauty of the object, if that's... Uh, yeah, well, I think, I've made, I think I've made some quite handsome pictures out of yeah. pretty horrible subject matter, you know. Um, so the generators for imagery can come from... And from... All artists that you, you know, so many artists that you see and you connect with, like Louise Bourgeois, she really plugged into her psychologically tortured moments as well. Yeah. Um, but a lot of artists come from difficult, their best work comes from difficult, I'm not saying you've got to have a big problem to get a decent work, but you know, it's surprising what can come from a horrible <laughs> subject. Yes. <laughs> Ready for a drink? They might. They might be brands. <laughs> Anybody have any final questions? Maybe we'll finish up then. Do you? Do you... I'm, I'm fascinated in the role you think uh, shadows play in your work. You know, there's the fairy tale, for example, about the loss of your shadow. The devil steals it, he sells it. And, uh, uh, that's called um, Shamil, I think, I yeah, seem to remember. Shemil, yeah. yeah, yeah, by Hans Christian Andersen. And um, I see this shadow here. And yes, the skull, that's death. <laughs> that's death uh, visiting my father, finally, over his shoulder. But as the shadow, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. it's become his best friend. Yeah. And, and do you see shadow as this, the, the, that nothing or, of death, or do you think it's the well, more ego thing, uh, that the Shamil thing is all about the loss of self, basically? Well, the, the father, the self, those sort, that sort of movement in a similar way. But um, I thought I'd finished with my father, but he still keeps surfacing in this week, so I hope he disappears in time. There's another work I'm working on at the moment where I started making a monotype and then this shape of hit my father's face, a bit, not, you know, not a serious port, but I thought, fuck, that's him again. What mm. the hell's he doing here? So I put it aside and then I just decided to make this small painting that will be shown um, early next year as well. And it started to, I started to work on it as a painting and I couldn't stand it, so it started to get skinnier mm. and skinnier and slimmer. And then it became me. So it started as this image of the father, which I was not going to print, printed it, and then when I started to work on it as a painting, it's then morphed into me, and it's, um, it, anyway, it's, um, that, it does, uh, from that darkness, there's a lot that can come to the surface. I think Francis Bacon worked with those sorts of things, strangely, too. I've got a lot of books on Francis Bacon in my studio, strangely, when I look at 
who have I got the most books on? It's Bacon. <laughs> Francis well, what, Bacon, what, 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 Louise of, Bourgeois. Yeah. They Dickens. are tortured artists. But, you know. <laughs> Bacon, yeah. There's, someone was recently talking about Bacon, how he'd say, uh, you know, fight against religion, not religion, no religion, da-da-da-da-da. Yep. And he said it so often that eventually you have to look in the opposite direction. Yeah, screaming Pope and so on. <laughs> yes, you know, I always really like his witticisms. He's amazingly witty. So real pain for my sham friends and yes. champagne for my real friends. Yes. Is, um, yeah. There are others. <laughs> oh, there are many, many others. Is that a good place to end yeah, let's champagne, let's champagne for yes. our real friends? Thank you all for being yep. our real friends. Thanks. Oh, no. We're, one more. Sorry. Hello. <laughs> um, thank you for your work today and speaking about it. What I find interesting about it, even though you're illuminating a very personal and subjective experience, it you've externalised your experience, so it touches on... Um, audience members or community members who may be experiencing some of those um, implicit issues in your work. And so in that way, I think um, you've successfully taken in an internal experience, filtered it through your work, externalised it, and are able to touch on mm. current issues such as domestic violence and things like that. Mm. And yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks. It is, sometimes I see that as a criticism of my own work, you know, it sort of seems so personal. Where's the politics? You know, why aren't I engaging in that issue over there? You know, less, but there are many artists involved in those issues. You know, there are plenty of artists illustrating and documenting all that, you know, the shitty histories. You know, so from myself, it's kind of, maybe, and maybe it does keep it in the present, you know. You know, I was thinking, you know, this Maurice Blanchot, French critic, talking about Emily Bronte and saying art isn't, art isn't civic experience, but, but, a, but a horrific and singular revelation at the, at the very edge of existence. And I don't know, I feel that's, yeah, you have that in experience as well in that, in that way. Yeah. Um, I recommend seeing The Shrink, by the way. It's <laughs> I do too. Do, can we recommend anyone? Like, <laughs> no, he's retired. No, mine's he retired as well. Like, he was what are we really going to do? Yeah. His knowledge of um, literature and art, and he was just great. He really broadened me. I just can't believe talking yeah. about your shrink about art, which I did as well. Yeah. It was so fantastic. Well, I would yeah, take these monotypes into them. him and we'd talk yeah. about them. You know. Talk them through. Yeah. yeah. Rorschach. Maybe lots. that's why that was such a generative year, you know. Yeah. I had him on my, by my yeah. side. What do you think of this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. Anyway. Everyone needs a good critic. <laughs> yes. In the studio, but yeah. Yes. I've got one friend that comes to the studio and is very... Um, He's known my works, we were at art school together and he can just nail something, you know, and I really, um, it's very valuable having someone like that. You need around. a critic you can trust who's not, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And sometimes he's completely wrong, but, you know. Anyway. I think on that note we might wrap up for tonight. Okay. Thank you so much everyone Thanks. for joining us and we're going to have the bar open for a bit more so if you'd like to join us for a drink and a little more discussion please do and just please join me in welcoming Brent and uh, thanking Brent and Justin for speaking with us tonight. Thank you.